Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. In this episode, we'll hear how General Kurs de la Rey captures Lord Methuen in an act that will push Lord Kitchener over a psychological precipice, as we will hear. Remember when we ended last week, I explained how Lord Methuen was particularly despised by both de la Rey and General Christian de Vett because the British commander had personally overseen the destruction of both of their farms. But as we'll hear in this podcast, de la Rey displays the kind of chivalry and victory last seen a hundred years before this war. He will also allow himself to be swayed by angry men and then execute British troops in cold blood. As for Methuen, he was someone with whom the Boers had an axe to grind, and with the capture, you would expect that the Boers would have played hardball, do some kind of swap at dawn, a general for a general, as historian Martin Bossenbrook writes. This is not to be. General Kuestarare had been itching for something significant in the Western Transvaal as he was pushed hither and thither by the British, and in turn pushed them back and forth. This story all started on the 25th of February 1902 at Eister which is around 10 miles from Claxthorpe in the Western Transvaal. Delaray caught the English napping there, swooping on a convoy of 150 wagons, most of which were empty. It was what was protecting the wagons that the general was after. A machine gun, two cannons, and a huge cache of rifles, ammunition, 200 horses, 400 oxen, and 1,500 mules. This came at precisely the right point for the Boers, and exactly the wrong time for the English troops, who were going to be shot up with their own weapons shortly. General Delaray also had employed a new strategy when he attacked the convoy, and one which would catch other English commanders off guard. Men stormed the convoy three times at full gallop, shooting from the saddle. Previously, they would gallop up, leap off their horses, send the horses back and then finish off the battle on foot. This was different, it was quicker, and the Boers were well able to fire off a shot or five pretty accurately, despite opening fire at a gallop. The first two attacks shocked the British troops defending the convoy enough for them to surrender by the third assault when the guards' resolve broke. The whole battle took an hour and a half. The British were left with 180 casualties, 240 soldiers captured. The Boers lost 50 men. De La Rey did not release his prisoners immediately, but marched to the Bechuanaland or Botswana border, and then let them go nine days later. He did not have the food nor the manpower to hold them anyway. It was now early March 1902, and De La Rey had a plan for a second major blow. This time it would take place at Tuerbosch, near the border. Tuerbosch means two bushes. He had been told by scouts that the British were smarting from his Eisterspreit victory, and Lord Kitchener had called a large group of mounted infantry to take action. Thousands of British soldiers were converging on De La Rey, and they were spotted between the Great Hearts and Little Hearts rivers. I found an informative paper published by L. W. Binadel while researching Methuen's capture buried in a small bookstore near the University of Pretoria. It's a short report written by G. A. van der Walt into both the Eisterspreit and Tuerbosch battles and has first-person accounts of what happened. Boer scouts initially tracked Lord Methuen's column leaving Freiburg on the 2nd of March, and the 2nd, led by General Kekovich, which departed Klaxtorp. They were to rendezvous on the 7th of March at Roy Rankis Fontaine, Red Ridge Spring. General Delaray had to make a strategic decision. 
He ideally should attack one of these units before they joined up with the other in order to weaken the force facing him. The Boers had enough war material in this part of the guerrilla theatre to cause significant damage thanks to their success at Aesterfontein. Methuen's unit appeared formidable, except if you placed it under closer scrutiny. It wasn't an elite unit. In fact, Bossenbrook calls it a ragtag bunch of relatively inexperienced yeomanry as well as irregular colonial troops and the cape-coloured special police. The latter were poorly trained and, as we'll see, poorly disciplined. Only half of the troops were mounted, the rest walked, but they were equipped with four guns, two Maxim machine guns and 85 wagons. There were not enough cavalrymen. However, Lord Methuen was pinning his hopes on a combined group of British finally capturing General Delaray, the line of the Western Transvaal. G.A. van der Valt writes at length about what happened when Methuen first came under attack the day before the battle, which we know as Tuerbosch. This should have been a warning to Methuen, particularly the manner in which his men went about their fighting and skirmishing. The pre-battle skirmishes were marked by nervous actions by the British. On the 6th of March 1902, Methuen had to see off what could be called a scuffle between the Boers and his rearguard, which actually caused panic amongst the English. Meanwhile, General Delaray was receiving intelligence reports on the movement of Methuen's force every half an hour throughout the 6th of March. The Boers were waiting in some force along the Klein Hearts River, because that's where the British were heading. The skirmish on the 6th meant that Methuen was aware of just how aggressive the Boers were, but in his haste to rid the British Empire of General Delaray, Methuen was to commit a few military errors. One was he confused quantity with quality. The Boers facing him were veterans of the war on the felt. Most had two years and eight months of constant fighting behind them. And there were over 700 of these. This was quality. Whereas the British had double the number, but their experience was mixed. This was quantity. The other Boer commanders wanted to allow Kekovic and Methuen to join up, then attack their combined columns, but Delaray knew this was folly. It was far better to strike while they were separated. So he sent General von Sale and around 100 men to harry Methuen's rearguard as they left Freiburg. The first bit of intelligence von Sale sent back was that the force was extremely slow moving. He was right, because on the 4th of March, Methuen sent a telegraph to Kekovic saying he would not arrive at Roy Rankisfontein on the 7th of March as planned. So von Sale sniped and harried but never did he allow his men to engage fully. This led Methuen's officers to believe that the Boers lacked courage and were weak. Lord Methuen was not as sure, and in one exchange, after the officers boasted of fighting off the Boers during their day's march, he said, We do not know what is going to happen in the future. Today they ran from us. However, tomorrow it may be our turn to take a beating. Lurking within Delaray's commando, was the eccentric prophet Nicolas van der Rensburg. The prophet was still riding with Delaray, who constantly asked him if there were any signs of victory or defeat before he ordered his men into battle. Van Rensburg has quite a story to tell. His biography was published after 1920, and the blazing-eyed prophet had some delightfully accurate predictions. Denise Reitz had kept an eye on the prophet during the previous year, 
when he joined Delaray's commander for a few months, and as we know, the youngster was never sure if van Rensburg was a charlatan or genuine. On the evening of 6th of March, the general asked Prophet van Rensburg what the forthcoming battle held for the Boers and whether he had had any dreams of note. The bearded prophet, his dark eyes sparkling, said, I have seen another red bull. This time it was thundering down a hill, but it reached the bottom with broken horns and a broken leg. The red bull wasn't a drink, it was the British. The Boers who listened believed the vision meant that they would win the battle. There would be looting, and one of the British generals would be a casualty. As we'll hear, Van Rensburg's prophecy was spot on. There was another update from the spies and scouts that angered Delaray, and he made a mental note to take revenge for the action. Methuen's force finally reached the upper waters of the Great Hearts River and then moved along the tributary called the Little Hearts. There they camped at a bend by mid-morning on the 6th of March, when Methuen called a halt to take advantage of the clear flowing river to refill water wagons and allow the slow-moving oxen to recuperate. They camped on a farm owned by the Scooter family. The women who remained on the farm had been told about the British imminent arrival and preferred to take their chances by staying in their house rather than making a run for it. General Van Sale was at the farm as the British arrived, and a handful of soldiers recognised the Boers, opening fire. Van Sale retreated across the river under a withering rifle and artillery barrage. Mrs. Skitter was shielding her six children of various ages under a bed at this stage, but came out when the skirmish ended. Then a group of white and coloured soldiers decided that the Scooter family needed to be taught a lesson. They ransacked the house while the women and children were kept to one side. The soldiers then destroyed what they could in the farm sheds and began to prepare to set fire to the buildings. The family was manhandled, accosted and assaulted. The situation was rapidly escalating. There was a scuffle. One of the white soldiers tried to kiss one of the teenage scooter girls. Things were going from bad to worse. Luckily for all, Lord Methuen received word of the assaults and sent word back to the men to cease intimidating the Boer family and return to their camp. He then ordered guards to be posted at the farmhouse to stop poorly disciplined troops from trying to rape the women and the girls. Before the predatory men left, one turned and said to Mrs. Scooter, You must all wait patiently, and if you're good, General Delaray will come and say good night. He sniggered as he walked off. The women knew how close Delaray was, but they also believed that the English force was too powerful for him to take them on in a full frontal battle action. Delaray, however, was not to be trifled with. When he was briefed about how the women and children were treated, he had vengeance on his mind. The story of what happened after the battle would sully the good name of Delaray, who so far had fought a fair war against a foe, but on the morrow, would take out his anger on men. In the Boer camp on the opposite side of the Little Hearts River, General Delaray planned his attack. All told, he had managed to gather 750 hardened veterans around him, and these men were warriors. They also wanted to try out their new Eisterspreit galloping tactic once more. After all, the Prophet van Rensburg had spoken, and so far he'd hardly put a foot wrong. At about two in the morning, scouts woke Delaray, saying it appeared that Methuen's force was starting to move. They were right. 
By three in the morning, a detachment of Methwin's column set off, followed by the main body about an hour later. It was still before dawn, but some birds were beginning to chirp as the faint light grew from the east. It was a whole hour later that the third group of Methwin's column, the main body, began to move out of the bend in the small Hearts River, and by doing so became the perfect target for the Boers, who could now gallop in from all sides, although they faced open ground. The commanders who rode into this battle found their names would become steeped in the oral tradition of the Boers. Generals Kemp, Saliers, Liebenberg and Delare. They had all reconnoitred the area. They knew every antil, dry spring bed, copy tree, buildings, fences, rocky rises. Lord Methuen had already sent a message to Kekovich, outlining that he was aware of Boer activity in his sector, but also that his column was progressing well. Waiting for them upriver were 750 Boers who were chomping at the bit to ride into battle. Delaray had issued strict orders for his men to remain hidden until the last moment. The general was on high ground watching the English in the dawn light. He knew that every single Boer man in the district had arrived and they wanted to draw blood. Meanwhile, the ragtag English column, heavily armed but poorly motivated, approached. As J. van der Walt writes, the order was then given to attack and, In the two years and eight months of the war, seldom had a group of burghers attacked the enemy in such a coordinated fashion. It was shock tactics by stormtroopers. At 5 a.m. the fight was on. The English troops walking near the wagons were knocked out first and most had no protection. Delaray had selected his attack zone carefully. A few English managed to find antils or rocks and fired back, shooting down some of the Boers on their horses. The mounted infantry headed directly towards the artillery, trying to protect the all-important heavy weapons from Delaray's screaming banshees whooping in from all angles. The wagons had stopped. Now there was desperate hand-to-hand fighting, and one-on-one personal battles on the felt were playing out. One of the British officers began picking off the Boers a crack shot. Then a Boer lined him up, and he was no more. A group of British artillerymen, numbering around nine, refused to give up. They were cut down one after another. Finally, Lieutenant Thomas Pierre William Neesham, who had been hit twice, was the only one left fighting off the Boers who wanted his artillery. The Boers shouted at Neesham to put his hands up. The game was up. I will die rather than surrender, he shouted back. He was then shot dead and the battle was over. Afterwards, a group of Boers stood over him, and van der Walt writes emotionally that He was a courageous young man, Nishim was his name, and all the Boers present said he'd earned his name as a hero, although he gave his life when the outcome of the battle was obvious. Both friend and foe, writes van der Walt, would wonder at the calmness he displayed while awaiting death. We could have expected so much from this young man in his later life. As with all wars, It is the youth that pay. His grave would be marked with this note. Thomas Pierre William Neesham, Lieutenant Royal Field Artillery, only son of the late Rear Admiral Neesham and Constance, his wife. Born 2nd May, 1880. Killed while gallantly serving his guns. Tweerbosch, 7th March, 1902. He preferred death to surrender. The cross above his grave was placed by his mother. It was ten o'clock when the battle ceased. It had raged for five hours. The Boers lost eight dead, twenty-six wounded. The British, however, had suffered a calamity. 
68 dead, 872 captured, 121 wounded, artillery taken, wagons taken, 500 horses seized. But the biggest trophy, as General Delare discovered, was Lord Methuen. He had been shot clean through the right leg, above his knee. The bullet had passed through the bone. He was in great pain and was now lying at the mercy of the Boer general with a compound fracture of the distal femur. What would Delaray do? After all, this was the man who had brought great personal loss to the Boer general, who had burned down his farm, sent his wife and children running into the plains of South Africa. Surely vengeance was the likely outcome. As we've seen in this series, however, nothing is easy to guess. The following exchange was noted by Delaray's adjutant as the Boer visited his opposite partner, lying with his broken leg splintered between two empty British rifles. Delaray, unlike most of the Boer generals, spoke no English. Methuen spoke no Afrikaans or Dutch. Methuen must have lain there wondering, for the wounded on both sides were being treated by Boer doctors. Both sides were being nursed together. That was nothing new. Delaray sat near Methuen, who looked up at him and through translators. The following conversation ensued. Methuen, in obvious pain, said, Is that General Delaray? Yes, you are Lord Methuen. Yes. A Boer standing nearby then said, Dan had Lord Methuen no ook se rimpie steif geloop, which means his belt ran tight. But a better translation is, Then Lord Methuen has shot his bolt. To which Methuen replied, Yes, but I didn't have my own column. Had this been the case, things would have ended differently. You have to admire his courage. Delaray said to Methuen, You can't talk about your own column, because I caught it in a fight at Eisterspreit. Methuen responded, Well, this morning was a fair fight. Delaray shrugged and asked, So, how many men did you have? Methuen replied, Fourteen hundred. But then it was not a fair fight, thundered Delaray, because I had fewer than 700 and had to fight across the flat land while you had antils for forts. Delaray was telling a small white lie. He had 750 men in total, but the point was valid. He had beaten a British force basically twice his size. A Boer called Nordia then pulled out a camera and took photographs of the wounded British general. Methuen was highly aware that he had personally set fire to Delaray's own farm and the Boer general's wife had been forced to flee onto the felt alone with her children. What would this man do to him? Well, what now transpired was almost miraculous in its magnanimity. A day later, General Delaray's wife, Nonny, turned up as if by magic and without batting an eyelid, she presented Lord Methuen with a bowl of chicken legs. This was a luxury, to put it mildly. The other Boers were nonplussed, and most none too pleased. Instead of holding Methuen as some sort of ransom, Delaray gathered his commanders around and discussed what they should do with this propaganda windfall. All agreed he was too badly wounded to be treated in the bush, so they put their prize prisoner in his own wagon and sent him to the garrison of Claxtorp, which was in British hands. The fact that they gave him his own possessions and put him in his own wagon, incensed the rank-and-file Boer soldiers. Not only that, but Delaray's wife and daughters were fussing over him, making Methuen comfortable for the agonizing wagon trip back to Clankstorp, which would take more than four days. There was some doubt he would make it alive. 
Mithrin must have been aware of how terribly he had treated these same women and children, destroying their homes and sending some to concentration camps or on the felt, and here they were, puffing up his pillows. He tried to have them leave him alone, but they wouldn't hear of it. Then Methuen and his wagon were gone. At first, the Boers who were busy looting the wagons and relaxing after the battle were unaware of his departure. When they discovered what General Dallare had done, a riot of sort broke out. They forced Dallare to reverse his decision, and a horseman was sent to convey the message to this effect. Delare continued to argue that they were fighting a civilized war and his actions would be a propaganda coup for the Boers. The wagon returned. Inside, a confused Methuen awaited his fate. Eventually, the men relented and accepted their general's point of view. The wagon was sent on its way again, and finally Lord Methuen made it back to Claxtorp. On arriving there, he sent the wagon back to Delare, filled with provisions. That angered the Boer soldiers still more, Weren't they all equal? This officer-to-officer magnanimity caused many an argument over the evening fires. Delare duly sent a telegram back to Methuen with warm wishes for Lady Methuen. And believe it or not, but Lord Methuen and General Kuas Delare became firm friends for life, writing letters to each other constantly over the years. It appeared chivalry was not dead, as Martin Bussenbrook points out. Unfortunately, the story does not have a glorious end, because war is war. Delaray's men were baying for blood, and one of the causes of their anger was the treatment of the scooter women and children on the farm the day before the battle. The lion of the western Transvaal now bared his less civilized teeth. He personally selected eight coloreds from the Cape who were prisoners of war, and were identified by the women of the farm as those who had assaulted them. Delaray wasted no time. The men were marched onto the felt and handed spades. After they had dug their own mass grave, they were blindfolded, then shot. Their grave remains hidden on the rolling plains of the western Transvaal, or what is now known as Northwest Province. Forgotten men who travelled and adventured across South Africa and were paid by a firing squad for assisting the British Empire. Nothing and no one comes out of any war smelling of roses, do they? But back in Pretoria, Lord Kitchener had what historians believe was a mini-nervous breakdown when he heard of what happened to Methuen. The news of the Battle of Tweerbosch was telegraphed to Kitchener on the 8th of March, and he was literally knocked flat. A column of 1,400 men with four field guns, machine guns, mounted men, led by one of his great commanders, Lord Methuen, had been smashed to bits, virtually wiped out. We have to understand this was the biggest disaster to befall the British in South Africa for the past two years. Kitchener's morale, which was always like a bungee cord, had been frayed by alternating hope and disappointments, finally snapped. He shut himself in his bedroom like a teenager, refusing to come out or see anyone. In fact, he stopped eating. For two days, the commander of a quarter of a million British troops in South Africa hid away from the African early autumn sunlight. Eventually, the brat, his adjutant, managed to coax him out of his hole. Lord Kitchener of Khartoum ate a hearty breakfast after his two-day hunger strike. Little did he know that within a fortnight, a delegation of Boers led by Skulk Berger, the acting president of the Transvaal Republic, in Paul Kruger's absence, would take a train to Pretoria to negotiate the end of this war.
that would take some time. So next week, we are back with General Smuts, who is escalating attacks on the British using trench warfare techniques that would be a precursor to the trenches of the Western Front. So until then, please rate the podcast on iTunes. If you have time, you can send me a message through the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. And to those who have sent me messages this week and supporting me on Twitter, thank you so much. To my new listeners in Fiji, where there's been a surge of interest, thank you for coming on board. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs> O bring me terug naar die Oudransval, daar waar my sare woon. Daar onder in die mil is by die groen door een boom, daar woon my sare maar Daar onder in die mil is by die groen door een boom.